Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. Today is a part four on six marks of a church culture that deeply changes lives. And our theme is actually healthy communities. So we began by talking about what's this, this thing called culture in a church or a community uh, that's healthy, has six characteristics. And we began with part one, talking about a slowdown spirituality, that uh, the culture itself has slowed down enough that people are being with Jesus out of which they're doing for him. They're not just simply cultural Christians doing programs, but they're actually seeking God for themselves as a body, of course, beginning with us. Then secondly, uh, we talked about in uh, part two about integrity and leadership, that uh, those of us who are carrying responsibilities in the community are actually living what we're preaching, we're modeling it, uh, because we understand that pretending or lying will simply reproduce that in those around us. And then thirdly, we talked about a uh, third mark of a culture that's deeply trans- that's transforming people is a beneath-the-surface discipleship. And we talked about that last week in really four areas in particular, family of origin, uh, we're getting into people's family of origin and cultures. Uh, and doing work on that so they can get free from the destructive patterns of the past that are hindering the present, brokenness and vulnerability, grief and loss limits. These become themes in a culture where people are being deeply transformed. Now, this week, we want to go into uh, part the fourth mark, which is a healthy community. And then next week, we'll go into passionate marriages and singleness and then every person in, in full-time ministry. Now, each of these six marks is vast, and of course, they overlap uh, with each other. So for example, you need a slow down spirituality for integrity and leadership and for beneath the surface discipleship, as well as a healthy community. And, uh, so, you know, two, three, and four and five and six are related to number one, et cetera. So again, let me encourage you to pick up uh, a little ebook I've written on this six marks of a church culture that deeply changes lives on our website at emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. You can pick that up and get an overview of what I'm going into depth here in this podcast. So let me move on here to healthy community, our fourth mark of a healthy of a church culture that deeply changes lives. When I came to faith in Jesus at age 19, uh, I was taught and, and began to live in Christian community and fellowship uh, from the very outset. It was a priority. I understood it. Uh, I remember reading Acts 2, 42 to 47 for the first time, that community of the early church. And uh, getting such a vision and a passion for it. And in John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know you're my disciples, by the way, that you love each other. And uh, so that the place of community and bearing witness to the aliveness of the resurrected Jesus. And so eventually this led to our starting a church here in Queens, New York City, called New Life Fellowship, with a commitment to bridging racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers, and really seeing a demonstration of the power of the gospel in our healthy community, in our in our in a healthy community. I preached it. I, I lived in it. Many of us lived in the same neighborhood, uh, very purposefully, in order to model this kind of community to the world around us. But something was clearly wrong. Couldn't quite put my finger on it in the early years. And we realized that people were growing in love for God, but it wasn't translating practically into greater love for people. And it was very difficult trying to figure out how is it that people could have this great passion for Jesus and Scripture, but still remain defensive and judgmental and critical and unapproachable and unsafe to be around. And 
finally, I came to the realization that the quality of love inside the church was really not that different from the quality of love outside the church, and that there was pretense and superficiality in both, and that something wasn't working in the way we were building community. And so we kept hitting this wall. Now, again, we were in a context of a fast-growing church plant, but we didn't know what to do with our own anger uh, towards people and sometimes circumstances. And uh, we were afraid of being honest in relationships. We didn't know what to do with sadness or disappointments. I even felt guilty for having sadness and disappointments. Uh, we didn't know how to talk about difficult topics. And so, say, for example, I was hurt or somebody was hurt by someone else and didn't really quite know how to talk about it in a mature, healthy way, or even disagree with someone. And how do you, how do you talk about that? How do you disagree with someone without it becoming uh, an argument? And we avoided conflicts. Uh, wanted to be nice, wanted to be perceived as good Christians, and we weren't really very honest with ourselves and others. And so often we were saying yes when we meant no, and saying no sometimes when we wanted to say yes, and making lots of assumptions about people and situations without checking them out. And of course, this gets very complicated in a church community or a, a parachurch community where you've got projections of authority and the God factors and issues of power, and I can go on and on. But this led us on a journey to, to try to figure out what was missing in our discipleship and the way that we were doing community and recognizing a person can be chronologically, again, 35, 55, 75 years old, but be an emotional infant, uh, an emotional child. And so that whole journey of emotionally healthy discipleship began in 1996 of connecting emotional health and spiritual maturity, that they're inseparable, that it's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And that really comes out in living in community. And I remember doing a, a thorough study on 1 Corinthians 13 and reading Jonathan Edwards and his work, his sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 about, you know, where Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of people and angels but have not love, I've got nothing. And that the evidence of maturity is our ability to love well. It's, and that if we can't love well and live in healthy community, something's, we're, we're an immature community and something something's wrong. And so I like to say it this way. If our people are not maturing and loving people, they're not maturing. It may appear we're maturing and loving God, but you can't separate that from loving people. And so this is one of the great tasks for us as leaders, uh, is creating a healthy community. Now, again, this supplies, I'm speaking specifically to churches, parachurches, your teams, your ministries, but of course it applies to the marketplace. But I want to just begin, before I go into like five or six points I want to make about building healthy community, which I had heard early on in my journey of building community, but I just want to normalize for a few moments how hard it is uh, so that you don't get discouraged over the long haul, because I was unprepared for what it was going to take to build a healthy community. So some illusions have to get shattered. For example, it's hard because of how much time it takes to build a healthy community. And again, a biblical community is radically different than the world. And if you remember, we defined culture a few podcasts away ago about culture is the way we just do things around here. It's that invisible uh, kind of presence, whether it's a, again, you think of companies, you can think of uh, families, uh, you can think of ministries, there's kind of unspoken rules. Uh, it's easier to build a crowd that just comes together for meetings than it is to build a healthy community because a healthy community requires shepherding, vigilance, watchfulness. Just think of Jesus and the 12 and what it took for him to bring together these 12 disciples. I mean, everything from Matthew, the tax collector, to Simon the zealot, to Peter, to sons of thunder, James and John. I mean, what a Thomas, what a group. 
And it didn't. It was hard for Jesus. Didn't didn't happen overnight. Uh, it's going to be difficult for us. It's challenging. It's also hard because of the power of the family system. Uh, secular commandments and trauma are powerfully passed on from generation uh, to generation. It's deep in our bones, and uh, there's a there's a multi generational transmission process of our families from generation to generation. And so, what happens is people are born into families and cultures that are enormously powerful. And so we're breaking up sinful patterns of families and cultures to help equip people to live in healthy community. And so it's hard because we as leaders are now discipling people. We're forming them to live in the church as the new family of Jesus. We're, we're doing almost like reparenting. That is the best word I know. It, it takes time. Think of parenting children. If you've got children, uh, it is just slow. It takes it's years. And that's why genograms uh, are, are so critical. This requires serious discipleship uh, on, on our part as leaders if we're going to, and serious training of people if we're going to build healthy communities. It's also hard because it requires us confronting ourselves, doing the difficult work of differentiation, and doing our own maturing work. Uh, I remember re- starting to read very widely on family systems theory uh, in the 19th early. 1996. And I I eventually went and got my doctor of ministry in marriage and family because I wanted to understand more about healthy community and systems. And so over a four-year period, I really immersed myself in uh, Murray Bowen, Ed Friedman, and the rest. And and family systems theory basically began um, by Murray Bowen because he was looking at, he was working with schizophrenics actually in the 1950s. Uh, and he, they would get well doing in therapy. He'd send them back into their families, and they kind of revert right back to where they were before. And he realized that you can't he- heal individuals alone, that you've got to see them in the context of their families. And, and then out of that came a lot of work on, on how we're all connected. It's much like 1 Corinthians 12. We're all connected as a body. And uh, you know, we as leaders are in a, a significant position to help people grow because we have access to people's families, to their traditions, all these rites of passage that come through life, like funerals, weddings, and birth. We have contact with people over a long period of time, and they recognize us as a leader. Uh, but I've got to do the difficult work of my own unfinished business that I'm not bringing that into the church or the community that I'm building. And because, again, every one of us in Christian leadership, we're part of a family of origin, uh, our present family as marriage or singles, and then a local church or community as a whole. And we're in all these three families at once, and what happens in one family affects the other, and our unresolved stuff gets activated. And so it's challenging because uh, if I'm not doing my work continually, uh, as I'm, I'm triggered in the community I'm building, uh, I can actually project my stuff onto the uh, healthy community that I'm trying to bring about. And so that's why the critical issue in the church or ministry or organization is always the nature of our presence and defining our own self and doing our own work. So with that said, if we're going to build a healthy community, the core group to look at is the leadership. Uh, And I'll call it the core 30. And actually, I did this for years uh, myself as I looked at our own community here at New Life Fellowship Church when I I was the lead pastor uh, for 26 years. And my basic principle went like this. If our board and our senior leadership uh, our, our core is healthy and unified. The church is healthy and unified. And actually, it was years later that I, I read of the research of Natural Church Development, uh, which is a leading organization that researches church health and growth around the world. 
And beginning in the late 1990s, Natural Church Development did these 93,000 surveys with over 70,000 churches in 71 countries. And to, and to assess the health uh, and heart of a church, they would only survey 30 people in a congregation, just 30, regardless of the church size. And it was really the 30 core people of the church, members, leaders, uh, those who were really committed to the life and growth of the congregation, because they understood that these 30 uh, were effectively taking, it was like taking a biopsy of the, of the heart of the organization, and they had the greatest influence on the church life. And so, and basically, that was that they knew they were going to permeate the whole culture with their values and behaviors and practices and their spirituality. And I realized that that's it. And so when we talk about the health, it can appear, but very often people say to me, well, the church looks pretty healthy. We as a leadership aren't very healthy. We've got a lot of disunity going on, a lot of unresolved conflicts, elephants in the rooms. Um, but that's an illusion because, again, the health flows out of the senior leadership. So let me just speak to you as a, a leader, whether leading a team or a ministry, a church, uh, even a small group, uh, about how do I build healthy community? And I'm going to give you really six kind of thoughts or ponderings for you in this in this podcast, all right? First is this, be careful uh, that you serve and develop people and not use them. Be careful that you serve and develop people and not use them. One of the great, subtle, very subtle temptations of leadership, especially when you're building something and you're going somewhere, uh, is that you need people to do things. And, and, and so you've got priorities, you've got some goals, you're, you're going somewhere. That's a, that's a really good thing. The temptation is drivenness. And the temptation is that your goals and our goals and our numbers and get into a higher level of priority than actually people. And we get concerned about appearances. We get busy and focused on production and the culture and the world around us, in a sense, seeps into us. And because we've got so much to do. And as a result, we end up taking from people uh, verse, and it's so subtle, we barely even realize it. Uh, it can go on actually for quite some time before we realize, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. I've got so much going on that I'm actually taking from people. I'm not actually being present and seeing them uh, and receiving their beauty, <clears throat> but I'm actually functioning almost like a machine on autopilot. I think, of the, I think of my own devotional time this morning in John 12, 42, where it says many, many of the Pharisees and leaders believed in Jesus, but they would not confess him for they, quote, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. It's so easy for the world to seep into us in our even building of healthy community. And, and so that we, again, we don't even realize. And I, I use the word subtle because um, the, the only answer to this is, is I've got to, again, be slowing down my life to live in loving communion with Jesus, uh, be reflective, and make sure I'm being present. Uh, now, again, if I can, I can adapt a quote from the 12th century from Bernardo Clairvaux, who says, if you're not worried or concerned you have a hard heart, you have one already. And I put it this way, if you're not concerned with the temptation of using people or just seeing them as kind of cogs and a machine to build something, your heart's already hard. In other words, we've got to always be guarding ourselves with that and watching ourselves. The second is this, to be diligent to confront the elephants in the room. Now, to confront the elephants in the room. Now, elephants are those things that are 
it's immature behavior, it's inappropriate behavior that remains unacknowledged or, or unaddressed. And these elephants tend to run wild and, and free on many teams and in many churches, uh, in many communities. And that's normal. We shouldn't think that's abnormal because people are coming into our communities doing life the way their family of origin does it. That's what they learn. That's in their bones. And so, again, it's our work as leaders, the hard work of, of forming a healthy community and discipleship. Let me give you a few examples uh, of elephants in the room and see if you can relate to them. And uh, this comes actually out of, out of a few examples of the Emotionally Healthy Leader book. Jacqueline is an, extent, an outstanding worship leader. Her gifts are a blessing to many uh, in the church. But at weekly service planning meetings, she is aloof, moody, and sullen, which seems to indicate she'd rather not be there. The other five members of the team can't help but notice this, but nobody asks her about it. Michael, a member of the church board, sends an email to six members of his staff team criticizing their decision to cancel the prayer meeting before and after Christmas. His tone is annoyed, bordering on angry. The lead pastor has a five-minute perfunctory conversation with Michael in an attempt to quickly resolve his concerns. The short-term problem is smoothed over, but the tension remains. Another elephant in the room example is Rob's a gifted communicator. People love him. The problem is that he has a habit of misrepresenting the truth. For example, he routinely agrees to do things but never follows through. He also exaggerates and embellishes the facts. Those close to him have learned to tolerate it as part of his visionary communicator package. Nora's ministry is flourishing, but she shows up late to staff meetings and one-on-one -on -one meetings a lot. She apologizes and offers reasonably good excuses, but the late arrivals persist. Others complain about her lateness, but no one holds her accountable for it. And finally, Patrick, the administrative assistant, has been on staff for 10 years, but he's not doing his job for the ministries that he serves. He's highly critical of other people, especially new staff that don't have the history of others. And the church is changing and growing, but Patrick is not. His supervisor does not know how to talk to Patrick about it and what to do with all the complaints about Patrick from those he's supposed to be supporting. The elephant sits in the room year after year. In fact, overlooking these kind of unacceptable behaviors is so common in teams and in, in churches and ministries that, uh, you know, I, I when I say to leaders, Pete, you got to be kidding me. I say, you got to confront the elephants in the room. They'll say, Pete, you know what would happen if I started confronting every elephant in the room? I might lose half my team. I wouldn't have time for anything else. So yes, it's true. You've got to prayerfully prioritize uh, how to do it uh, and how to move forward. When I first recognized this was, this was, this was 1996, I realized there were so many elephants in the room. And it was a slow, multi-year process of basically beginning to address them and be concerned about building a healthy community. And again, I, I was with a group just this past week, uh, and we were talking about their particular culture. Uh, they were from uh, actually the, the Philippines in this case. And, and we were just talking about, you know, the culture and how they deal with conflict and being nice and, and just the challenge to speak honestly, clearly, respectfully, and in a timely fashion. And how difficult it is to get beyond nice, uh, even though it's not true, when there's a tension. And the fruit of that over months and years in terms of building community. And, and so 
being diligent to confront the elephants in the room means I, I, I'm going to be I'm going to drill down with people uh, in terms of getting into the issue and take the time needed to actually get at the root and begin to shift the way people are relating to each other. It's very difficult. It takes time. There is no instant culture. And actually, it's built one interaction at a time. Again, I'm very aware of that. And I want to encourage you to be aware of that. Think to think of your uh, community as a system, and that when you help one piece of the system, think of think of a body, arm, leg, foot, uh, hip. Uh, you you get help one get healthy. It really does have a permeating effect to the rest of the body. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. Think of the story of Achan. So this issue of not just watching yourself, you know, being make sure you're not using people and being present with your own motives, but being diligent to confront elephants in the room is one of the core issues of building healthy community, which leads me to the third uh, thing, which is uh, building healthy community, which is to intentionally teach new skills. Uh, you've got to take leadership uh, to begin to reparent and redo this community so that people are doing relationships differently, and that requires new skills. Here's my little formula uh, that I'd encourage you to, to consider. New skills plus new language plus intentional follow-up equals healthy, transformed communities. Let me say that again. New skills plus new language plus intentional follow-up equals transformed, healthy community. Again, culture is such a powerful presence that unless we intentionally bring in a new culture as Christ followers and as leaders, what's going to happen is not just the American culture or people's culture, but the way they've done life and their families will just overwhelm what you're trying to build. We can preach sermons um, every week for the next 50 years. Building community is slow and takes time, and it's one interaction at a time. Again, just think of Jesus' decision to not just deal with multitudes, but to focus on the 12. And this is what led us over these last 23 years to build skills. And, and actually, we, we began developing skills in 1996. Uh, as we began to learn them, or we learned one, actually, in a counselor's office, and out of that, we realized the power of skills to apply theology and how we needed something practical. And this has morphed into over a 21-year period into what we call today the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. And again, we're trying to break down how do you help people love? How do you help them do relationships differently when they've got these entrenched ways in them? And so it's morphed into eight core skills that form the framework of what's called the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. And uh, there are eight. And uh, the community temperature reading is the first one, and it's a very basic uh, relating skill. It's actually the base skill of helping people how to make an appreciation, how to do a complaint with requests for change, how to express a hope. And they, they, it seems so simple, but yet it's so far-reaching for so many people doing it for the first time. We teach stop mind reading and clarify expectations and to not make assumptions that we don't do mind reading. We actually uh, have honest conversations with people. And then people do a genogram with their family of origin, going back three to four generations and looking at how it's impacted their relationships. It's it's forcing people to go back in order to go forward and do the hard work of looking and becoming aware of how they come off to other people. Uh, explore the iceberg is another skill of just learning uh, how to feel, uh, especially difficult feelings of sadness and fear and anger. 
And then we teach people how to speak clearly, respectfully, and honestly, and how to listen like Jesus. And very few people have learned to speak clearly, honestly, and respectfully, and very few people have learned to listen uh, and enter other people's world and be present with them. Then we have another skill called climb the ladder of integrity, just getting in touch with our values so we don't blame people. And finally, clean fighting, which is we don't do dirty fighting in the new family of Jesus. We do clean fighting. And so, again, the skills are in some ways simple to understand, but very, very difficult to do. And people invest tens of thousands of dollars in their careers and their vocations, but very little in growing into an emotionally mature uh, adult. And uh, so these skills have got to be practiced. They've got to be experienced. Uh, it's like learning to ride a bike. You got to get on the bike and not just read about a bike. You got to get on the bike and actually do it to learn how to ride a bike. And so uh, for leaders, we've got to master some new skills in our own lives so to become second nature to us. And then we've got to reinforce it in a culture. So it's not just doing it once. And I want, I want to encourage you, you want to you know, get a hold of this Emotionally Healthy Relationships course, go through those skills. Um, in fact, sample it. There's a sample on our front of our website that says sample the course. And I would just, there's two parts of the course and one is the relationships course. Just go to the relationships part and watch one of the sessions, download the workbook and just get a feel for it. It's all free. So just push that button on the front page of the website. Remember, new skills plus new language plus intentional follow-up equals transformed healthy community. It's incredibly slow. So I'm really sorry for those of you who are saying, I, Pete, I don't have that kind of time. What I'm saying to you is you don't, you don't have a choice. There is no there is no speed button on this thing, okay? You can't go four times the speed like you can on a podcast. Um, it is just slow, but it's powerful. Uh, as we build a healthy community, we really do bring, you know, bear witness to Jesus. So again, let me, let me. I know what I'm asking a lot to, to say, you've got to reshift the way you're doing all your relationships so you can then begin to bring it to the community. But it's got to become second nature to you that you don't need the training wheels of the course anymore. You can throw those training wheels out because it's so in you. And when there's an unhealthy elephant in the room, you don't, you don't need a booklet to kind of help break it down for you. It's just in you. You know something's wrong and I got to go explore it here. Okay, so fourth little tidbit on building healthy community is to become profoundly aware of how power is being exercised in the community. To begin to become acutely aware of how power is being exercised in the community. It's interesting, I'm in the process of reading through uh, the Old Testament. And again, just reading through um, number, Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and just looking at uh, Moses' challenge around power. Uh, from the rebellions to Miriam to the sons of Korah. I mean, it's just a fascinating thing. And, and, and so in the same way, you can't talk about a community without talking about power and begin looking at how is that exercised, you know, in the community. And so you, you just think about with me for a few moments about, you know, what's the power, do an honest inventory. What's the kind of power that God's given you? What's the extent of your power? Again, positional power. Uh, it may be uh, relational power. It may be the fact that you've got some projected power that people project onto you. Uh, your personal power in terms of your gifts. Uh, and so there's lots of power that we have. And so we've got to be very careful and thoughtful about how I'm actually exercising that. Uh, and then when you get triggered, uh, what do you do? And, and do you have a mature spiritual companion that can help you work through that? And then the issue of dual relationships and how are you handling that? And are you getting wise counsel to monitor uh, that? And it's very critical that we defer to others 
in the discernment, when we have a critical of a dual relationship where someone's pastor, maybe they're or their boss, uh, or also their brother, or, or their sister, or also their um, you know, their spiritual director. Uh, but leadership is very complicated. And so I gotta be just get wise counsel around the issue of dual relationships. Uh, I want to be sensitive to cultural and ethnic and gender and generational nuances that come in community. Uh, I want to be able to release people in a loving way versus control them, whether they're paid or volunteer. But again, it's all about power and how it's being monitored in a community. Um, again, remember that it, the person with greater power has the greater responsibility to set healthy boundaries uh, and keep them. And... Um, and then you always want to be careful to ask God for grace to forgive your enemies. But to, to the issue of power is very critical, very important to just monitor, uh, because those are key moments to model serving under people in a mature way and not exercising power over them. Uh, power has been a deadly uh, disease from the beginning of time. and uh, But you wanna become profoundly aware of how it's exercised in your community and especially how you exercise it. And when it's exercised poorly or out of order, that you have the courage or someone's got the courage to, to talk about it. Uh, my, my fifth little tidbit for you as you consider a healthy community is to, to remember, they'll always remember the little in the community. We, we need the little, not the, you know, this, this is Jesus' way. Remember Paul wrote about the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Uh, because Paul understood that those on the margins, the, the little, who are very weak and, and vulnerable, can't speak for themselves, those on the margins who are whether it's poor or unstrategic, unimpressive, orphans, widows, disabled, mentally challenged, uh, mentally ill, children, the elderly, addicts, those in jail, those standing in the background, you know, those for whom the world has contempt or ignores, who don't fit on the paper. That's why they call them the margins. And Jesus consistently said, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame to the banquet. And and because those who are considered marginalized and failures, they, they just give a balance to a community um, they, they, they offer something, they, they give us an equilibrium. They, they teach us about tenderness and love and, and what's important. Um, it, the, it, there's something about the little and the marginalized that ground us. Life's not about competition and power or education. The push of the world is pretend we're big and be with the beautiful people and the celebrities. And it's an illusion. We're not. Uh, when we're with people with deep weaknesses and vulnerabilities on the margins, we discover a lot about ourselves we get in touch with our own humanity. And throughout history, so many have realized that Matthew 25 is true. When Jesus says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and I was a stranger and you invited me in. And I know for myself and our own church, we have a lot of power and privilege. And that's why I, I know that, you know, I need the little and the poor, not just to serve them. I need, from, they, I need them for my own maturity and, and growth. And uh, it's just messy. And I thank God. You know, I, by where I live and the nature of our church, I have immediate access to them. But every church has access and every culture has got access to those on the margins uh, who are in pain. And so always watch the little. They're important and critical to a Christian community for our own balance and equilibrium. And then finally, my last uh, and final tidbit here for you on building a healthy community is don't be alarmed. You will be betrayed, and your greatest pain will probably come in your building of the healthy community. Just remember all the space given to Jesus and Judas 
uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus. I mean, it's amazing. And I, I believe it's in that New Testament so that we would not be alarmed by it. And in my own life and in my own informal surveys a few years back, I've never met any, anybody in any tradition, whether it's Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Evangelical, all races, all cultures, all over the world, small and large churches and ministries, anybody who's given themselves to be part of a community and build a community has experienced betrayal and deep pain. Probably some of the deepest pain in their life has come out of the community. Uh, and all I can say is, as Jesus said, a student is not above his teacher, a servant not above their master. If Jesus was betrayed, we shall be betrayed. It's a way of coming to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, and the power of his resurrection, and the glory of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, just don't be alarmed. It just is. Would I have chosen this pathway for you or for me? Absolutely not. All I know is it's in scripture, it's in reality, uh, and it will come to you. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, let me invite you to go to our website at emotionallyhealthy.org. Uh, join us for one of the trainings of Mastering the Launch of the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. Uh, we do it on a monthly basis and begin to integrate some of those relationship course skills into your community uh, and to remove some elephants in the room or at least make those elephants healthy for the sake and the glory of Jesus. God bless everybody. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Have a great day.